Chapter 49, Part 5 of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Durrett. Conquest of Italy by the Franks, Part 5 If we retrace the outlines of this geographical picture, it will be seen that the empire of the Franks extended between east and west, from the Ebro to the Elbe or Vistula, between the north and south, from the Duchy of Beneventum to the River Eider. The south from the duchy, or rather perpetual boundary of Germany and Denmark. The personal and political importance of Charlemagne was magnified by the distress and division of the rest of Europe. The islands of Great Britain and Ireland were disputed by a crowd of princes of Saxon or Scottish origin, and after the loss of Spain, the Christian and Gothic kingdom of Alfonso the Chaste was confined to the narrow range of the Asturian mountains. These petty sovereigns revered the power or virtue of the Carlovingian monarch, implored the honor and support of his alliance, and styled him their common parent, the sole and supreme emperor of the West. He maintained a more equal intercourse with a caliph, Harun al-Rashid, whose dominion stretched from Africa to India, and accepted from his ambassadors a tent, a water-clock, an elephant, and the keys of the holy sepulchre. It is not easy to conceive the private friendship of a Frank and an Arab, who were strangers to each other's person, and language, and religion, but their public correspondence was founded on vanity, and their remote situation left no room for a competition of interest. Two-thirds of the Western Empire of Rome was subject to Charlemagne, and the deficiency was amply supplied by his command of the inaccessible or invincible nations of Germany. But in the choice of his enemies, we may re be reasonably surprised that he so often preferred the poverty of the north to the riches of the south. The three-and-thirty campaigns laboriously consumed in the woods and morasses of Germany would have sufficed to assert the amplitude of his title by the expulsion of the Greeks from Italy and the Saracens from Spain. The weakness of Greeks would have ensured an easy victory, and the holy crusade against the Saracens would have been prompted by glory and revenge and loudly justified by religion and policy. Perhaps in his expeditions beyond the Rhine and the Elbe, he aspired to save his monarchy from the fate of the Roman Empire, to disarm the enemies of civilized society, and to eradicate the seed of future immigrations. But it has been wisely observed that, in the light of precaution, 
all conquest must be ineffectual, unless it could be universal, since the increasing circle must be involved in a larger sphere of hostility. The subjugation of Germany withdrew the veil which had so long concealed the continent of islands of Scandinavia from the knowledge of Europe and awakened the torpid courage of their barbarous natives. The fiercest of the Saxon idolaters escaped from the Christian tyrant to their brethren of the north. The ocean and Mediterranean were covered with their piratical fleets, and Charlemagne beheld with a sigh the destructive progress of the Normans, who, in less than seventy years, precipitated the fall of his race and monarchy. Had the Pope and the Romans revived the primitive constitution, the titles of Emperor and Augustus were conferred on Charlemagne for the term of his life, and his successors, on each vacancy, must have ascended the throne by a formal or tacit election. But the association of his son Louis the Pious asserts the independent right of monarchy and conquest, and the emperor seems on this occasion to have foreseen and prevented the Latin claims of the clergy. The royal youth was commanded to take the crown from the altar, and with his own hands to place it on the head as a gift which he held from God, his father, and the nation. The same ceremony was repeated, though with less energy, in the subsequent associations of Lothair and Louis II. The Carlovingian scepter was transmitted from father to son, and a lineal descent of four generations, and the ambitions of the popes was reduced to the empty honor of crowning and anointing these hereditary princes who were already invested with their power and dominions. The pious Louis survived his brothers and embraced the whole empire of Charlemagne, but the nations of the nobles, his bishops, and his children quickly discerned that this mighty mass was no longer inspired by the same soul and the foundations were undermined to the center, while the external surface was yet fair and entire. After a war or battle which consumed 100,000 francs, the empire was divided by treaty between his three sons, who had violated every filial and fraternal duty. The kingdoms of Germany and France were forever separated. The provinces of Gaul, between the Rhone and the Alps, the Meuse and the Rhine, were assigned with Italy to the imperial dignity of Lothair. In the petition of his share, Lorraine and Alice, two recent and transitory kingdoms, were bestowed on the younger children, and Louis II, his eldest son, was content with the realm of Italy, the proper and sufficient patrimony of a Roman emperor. On his death, without any male issue, 
the vacant throne was disputed by his uncles and cousins, and the popes most dexterously seized the occasion of judging the claims and merits of the candidates, and of bestowing on the most obsequious or most liberal the imperial office of advocate of the Roman Church. The dregs of the Carlovingian race no longer exhibited any symptoms of virtue or power, and the ridiculous epithets of the bard, the stammerer, the fat, and the simple distinguished the tame and uniform features of a crowd of kings alike deserving of oblivion. By the failure of the collateral branches, the whole inheritance devolved to Charles the Fat, the last emperor of his family. His insanity authorized the desertion of Germany, Italy, and France. He was deposed in a diet and solicited his daily bread from the rebels by whose contempt his life and liberty had been spared. According to the measure of their force, the governors, the bishops, and the lords usurped the fragments of the falling empire, and some preference was shown to the female or illegitimate blood of Charlemagne. Of the greater part, the title and possession were alike doubtful, and the merit was adequate to the contracted scale of their dominions. Those who could appear with an army at the gates of Rome were crowned emperors in the Vatican, but their modesty was more frequently satisfied with the appellation of kings of Italy, and the whole term of seventy-four years may be deemed a vacancy from the abdication of Charles the Fat to the establishment of Otho the First. Otho was of the noble race of the dukes of Saxony, and if he truly descended from Witikind, the adversary and proselyte of Charlemagne, the posterity of a vanquished people were exalted to reign over their conquerors, his father, Henry the Fowler, was elected by the suffrage of the nation to save and institute the kingdom of Germany. Its limits were enlarged on every side by his son, the first and greatest of the Authos. A portion of Gaul to the west of the Rhine, along the banks of the Meuse, and the Moselle were assigned to the Germans by whose blood and language it has been tinged since the time of Caesar and Tacitus. Between the Rhine, the Rhone, and the Alps, the successors of Otho acquired a vain supremacy over the broken kingdoms of Burgundy and Arles. In the north, Christianity was propagated by the sword of Otho, the conqueror and apostle of the Slavic nations, of the Elbe and Oder. The marches of Brandenburg and Schleswig were fortified with German colonies, and the King of Denmark, the Dukes of Poland and Bohemia, confessed themselves his tributary vassals. At the head of a victorious army, 
he passed the Alps, subdued the kingdom of Italy, delivered the Pope, and forever fixed the imperial crown in the name and nation of Germany. From that memorable era, two maxims of public jurisprudence were introduced by force and ratified by time. That the prince who was elected in the German diet acquired from that instant the subject kingdoms of Italy and Rome, but that he might not legally assume the titles of emperor and Augustus till he had received the crown from the hands of the Roman pontiff. The imperial dignity of Charlemagne was announced to the east by the altercation of his style, and instead of saluting his fathers, the Greek emperors, he presumed to adopt the more equal and familiar appellation of brother. Perhaps in his connection with Irene he aspired to the name of husband. His embassy to Constantinople spoke the language of peace and friendship, and might conceal a treaty of marriage with that ambitious princess who had renounced the most sacred duties of a mother. The nature, the duration, the probable consequences of such a union between two distant and dissonant empires, it is impossible to conjecture, but the unanimous silence of the Latins may teach us to suspect that the report was invented by the enemies of Irene to charge her with the guilt of betraying the church and state to the strangers of the West. The French ambassadors were the spectators and had nearly been the victims, and the conspiracy of Nicephorus and the national hatred. Constantinople was exasperated by the treason and sacrilege of ancient Rome. A proverb that the Franks were good friends and bad neighbors was in everyone's mouth but it was dangerous to provoke a neighbor who might be tempted to reiterate in the church of St. Sophia the ceremony of his imperial coronation. After a tedious journey of circuit and delay, the ambassadors of Nicephorus found him in his camp on the banks of the river Sala and Charlemagne affected to confound their vanity by displaying in a Franconian village the pomp, or at least the pride, of the Byzantine palace. The Greeks were successively led through four halls of audience. In the first they were ready to fall prostrate before a splendid personage in a chair of state, till he informed them that he was only a servant, the constable or master of the horse of the emperor. The same mistake and the same answer were repeated in the apartments of the Count Palatine, the steward and the chamberlain, and their impatience was gradually heightened till the doors of the presence chamber were thrown open and they beheld the genuine monarch on his throne enriched with the foreign luxury which he despised, and encircled with the love and reverence of his victorious chiefs. 
A treaty of peace and alliance was concluded between the two empires, and the limits of the east and west were defined by the right of present possession. But the Greeks soon forgot this humiliating equality, or remembered it only to hate the barbarians by whom it was extorted. During the short union of virtue and power, they respectfully saluted the august Charlemagne with the acclamations of Basilius, the emperor, and the Romans. As soon as these qualities were separated in the person of his pious son, the Byzantine letters were inscribed to the king, or, as he styles himself, the emperor of the Franks and Lombards. When both power and virtue were extinct, they despoiled Louis II of his hereditary title, and with the barbarous appellation of Rex or Riga, degraded him among the crowd of Latin princes. His reply is expressive of his weakness. He proves, with some learning, that both in sacred and profane history, the name of king is synonymous with the Greek word Basilius. If, at Constantinople, it were assumed in a more exclusive and imperial sense, he claims from his ancestors and from the popes a just participation of the honors of the Roman purple. The same controversy was revived in the reign of the Othos, and their ambassador describes in lively colors the insolence of the Byzantine court. The Greeks affected to despise the poverty and ignorance of the Franks and Saxons, and in their last decline refused to prostitute to the kings of Germany the title of Roman emperors. These emperors and the election of the popes continued to exercise the powers which had been assumed by the Gothic and Grecian princes, and the importance of this prerogative increased with the temporal estate and spiritual jurisdiction of the Roman Church. In the Christian aristocracy, the principal members of the clergy still formed a senate to assist the administration and to supply the vacancy of the bishop. Rome was divided into 28 parishes, and each parish was governed by a cardinal priest or presbyter, a title which, however common or modest in its origin, has aspired to emulate the purple of kings. Their number was enlarged by the association of the seven deacons of the most considerable hospitals, the seven palatine judges of the Lateran, and some dignitaries of the church. This ecclesiastical senate was directed by the seven cardinal bishops of the Roman province, who were less occupied in the suburb diocese of Ostia, Porto, Velitrum, Tusculum, Praneste, Tibor, and the Sabines, than by their weekly service in the Lateran and their superior share in the honors and authority of the Apostolic See. On the death of the Pope, these bishops recommended a successor to the suffrage 
of the College of Cardinals, and their choice was ratified or rejected by the applause or clamor of the Roman people. But the election was imperfect, and could the pontiff be legally consecrated till the emperor, the advocate of the church, had graciously signified his approbation and consent. The royal commissioner examined on the spot the form and freedom of the proceedings, nor was it till after the, a previous scrutiny into the qualifications of the candidates that he accepted an oath of fidelity and confirmed the donations which had successfully enriched the patrimony of St. Peter. In the frequent schisms, the rival claims were submitted to the sentence of the emperor, and in a synod of bishops he presumed to judge, to condemn, and to punish the crimes of a guilty pontiff. Otho I imposed a treaty on the senate and people, who engaged to prefer the candidate most acceptable to his majesty, his successors anticipated or prevented their choice, they bestowed the Roman benefice, like the bishoprics of Cologne and Bamberg, on their chancellors or preceptors, and whatever might be the merit of a Frank or Saxon, his name sufficiently attests the interposition of foreign power. These acts of prerogative were most speciously excused by the vices of the popular election. The competitor who had been excluded by the cardinals appealed to the passions or avarice of the multitude. The Vatican and the Lateran were stained with blood, and the most powerful senators, the Marquises of Tus Tuscany and the Counts of Tusculum, held the apostolic see in a long and disgraceful servitude. The Roman pontiffs of the ninth and tenth centuries were insulted, imprisoned, and murdered by their tyrants, and such was their indigence after the loss and usurpation of the ecclesiastical patrimonies that they could neither support the state of a prince, nor exercise the charity of a priest. The influence of two sister prostitutes, Marosia and Theodora, was founded on their wealth and beauty, their political and amorous intrigues. The most strenuous of their lovers were rewarded with a Roman mitre, and their reign may have suggested to the darker ages the fable of a female pope. The bastard son, the grandson, and the great-grandson of Marosia, a rare genealogy, were seated in the chair of St. Peter, and it was at the age of nineteen years that the second of these became the head of the Latin church. His youth and manhood were of a suitable complexion, and the nations of pilgrims could hear or bear testimony to the charges that were urged against him in a Roman synod and in the presence of Otho the Great. As John XII had renounced the dress and decencies of his profession, 
the soldier may not perhaps be dishonored by the wine which he drank, the blood that he spilt, the flames that he kindled, or the licentious pursuits of gaming and hunting. His open simony might be the consequence of distress, and his blasphemous invocation of Jupiter and Venus, if it be true, could not possibly be serious. But we read with some surprise that the worthy grandson of Marosia lived in public adultery with the matrons of Rome, that the Lateran palace was turned into a school for prostitution, and that his rapes of virgins and widows had deterred the female pilgrims from visiting the tomb of St. Peter, lest, in a devout act, they should be violated by his successor. The Protestants have dwelt with malicious pleasure on these characters of Antichrist, but to a philosophic eye, the vices of the clergy are far less dangerous than their virtues. After a long series of scandal, the apostolic see was reformed and exalted by the austerity and zeal of Gregory the Seventh. That ambitious monk devoted his life to the execution of two projects. One, to fix in the College of Cardinals the freedom and independence of election, and forever to abolish the right or usurpation of the emperors and the Roman people. Two, to bestow and resume the Western Empire as a fief or benefice of the church, and to extend his temporal dominion over the kings and kingdoms of the earth. After a contest of fifty years, the first of these designs was accomplished by the firm support of the ecclesiastical order whose liberty was connected with that of their chief. But the second attempt, though it was crowned with some partial and apparent success, has been vigorously resisted by the secular power and finally extinguished by the improvement of human reason. In the revival of the empire of empire of Rome, neither the bishop nor the people could bestow on Charlemagne or Otho the provinces which were lost as they had been won by the chance of arms. But the Romans were free to choose a master for themselves, and the powers which had been delegated to the patrician were irrevocably granted to the French and Saxon emperors of the West. The broken records of the times preserve some remembrance of their palace, their mint, their tribunal, their edicts, and the sword of justice, which, as late as the 13th century, was derived from Caesar to the prefect of the city. Between the arts of the popes and the violence of the people, this supremacy was crushed and annihilated. Content with the titles of Emperor and Augustus, the successors of Charlemagne neglected to assert this local jurisdiction. In the hour of prosperity, their ambition was diverted by more alluring objects, and in the decay and division of the empire, they were oppressed by the defense of their hereditary provinces. 
Amidst the ruins of Italy, the famous Marosia invited one of the usurpers to assume the character of her third husband, and Hugh, king of Burgundy, was introduced by her faction into the mole of Hadrian or castle of St. Angelo, which commands the principal bridge and entrance of Rome. Her son, by the first marriage, Alberic, was compelled to attend at the nuptial banquet, but his reluctant and ungraceful services was chastised with a blow by his new father. The blow was productive of a revolution. Romans, he exclaimed the youth, once you were masters of the world, and these Burgundians, the most abject of your slaves, now they reign, these voracious and brutal savages, and my injury is the commencement of your servitude. The alarm bell rang to arms in every quarter of the city. The Burgundians retreated with haste and shame. Marosia was imprisoned by her victorious son, and his brother, Pope John Eleventh, was reduced to the exercise of his spiritual functions. With the title of prince, Alberic possessed above twenty years the government of Rome, and he is said to have gratified the popular prejudice by restoring the office, or at least the title, of consuls and tribunes. His son and heir Octavian assumed with a pontificate the name of John Twelve. Like his predecessor, he was provoked by the Lombard princes to seek a deliverer for the church and republic, and the services of Otho were rewarded with the imperial dignity. But the Saxon was imperious, the Romans were impatient, the festival of the coronation was disturbed by the secret conflict of prerogative and freedom, and Otho commanded his sword-bearer not to stir from his person, lest he should be assaulted and murdered at the foot of the altar. Before he repassed the Alps, the emperor chastised the revolt of the people and the ingratitude of John Twelve. The pope was degraded in a synod. The prefect was mounted on an ass, whipped through the city, and cast into a dungeon. Thirteen of the most guilty were hanged, others were mutilated or banished, and this severe process was justified by the ancient laws of Theodosius and Justinian. The voice of fame has accused the second Otho of a perfidious and bloody act, the massacre of the senators, whom he had invited to his table under the fair semblance of hospitality and friendship. In the minority of his son Otho III, Rome made a bold attempt to shake off the Saxon yoke, and the consul Crescentius was the Brutus of the Republic. From the condition of a subject and an exile, he twice rose to the command of the city, oppressed, expelled, and created the popes, and formed a conspiracy for restoring the authority of the Greek emperors. In the fortress of St. Angelo, he maintained an obstinate siege, 
till the unfortunate consul was betrayed by a promise of safety, his body was suspended on a gibbet, and his head was exposed on the battlements of the castle. By a reverse of fortune, Otho, after separating his troops, was besieged three days without food in his palace, and a disgraceful escape saved him from the justice or fury of the Romans. The senator Ptolemy was the leader of the people, and the widow of Crescentius enjoyed the pleasure or the fame of revenging her husband by a poison which she administered to her imperial lover. It was the design of Otho III to abandon the ruder countries of the north, to erect his throne in Italy, and to revive the institutions of the Roman monarchy. But his successors only once in their lives appeared on the banks of the Tiber to receive their crown in the Vatican. Their absence was contemptible, their presence odious and formidable. They descended from the Alps at the head of their barbarians, who were strangers and enemies to the country, and their transient visit was a scene of tumult and bloodshed. A faint remembrance of their ancestors still tormented the Romans, and they beheld with pious indignation the succession of Sanks, or other Saxons, Franks, Swabians, and Bohemians, who usurped the purple and prerogatives of the Caesars. End of chapter 49, part 5. Recording by Dick Durrett, Manchester, New Hampshire.